to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And uh, we'll be uh, looking at uh, approximately verse 28 and following. Luke 19, 28 and following. This morning we uh, take a detour from our study in John to revisit what is likely a familiar scene for us, and that is Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we temporarily depart from our current study in John's Gospel, let's take a moment to consider the matter of timing. Last week, we heard Jesus declare of himself, I am the door. While his original listeners struggled with that reference, it is clear to us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to come to the Father and enter into God's eternal kingdom is through faith in Christ. Therefore, he is the door. The timing of that declaration, I am the door, which would then be followed with the following declaration, I am the good shepherd, those declarations came during the feast of dedication. During our introduction to chapter 10, we learned that the feast of dedication, also known as Hanukkah, takes place in the winter. Today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday and Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we are fast-forwarding four months. As Jesus returns to Jerusalem, he's coming with his disciples to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And as we know, it is also during this week that he, the Lamb of God, will give his life on the cross. Today, as we are witnessing Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and he is greeted by an excited crowd, the, what we will see is a display of contrasts. While the crowd celebrates, Jesus does not. While the crowd celebrates, anticipating all they expect Jesus to do, Jesus looks into the future and it causes him to weep. We return now to that steep and heavily trafficked road that goes from the top of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Valley, and back up Mount Zion to the mountaintop plateau where Jerusalem is located. Along this road are tens of thousands of pilgrims who are traveling to the holy city to celebrate the Passover. Some are walking along the road, but many more are lining that road to see the one who is riding into the city atop a colt the foal of a donkey. As the crowds sing excerpts from the Psalms, they lay before him their cloaks, their 
heavy outer garments and palm branches that have been cut from trees. And why are they giving Jesus this hero's welcome? Because they believe this is their Messiah. As we will see in the text, they believe he will be their conquering king, a king like David, who will vanquish the Romans and restore Israel to its former glory. If we take a quick look at verse 38, the people are literally singing his praises as they make known their expectations. Here's what they sing. Blessed is he who comes, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. And this sets up a stark and tragic contrast. While the crowds are filled with joy and excitement, what do we find Jesus doing? Let's have a preview of verse 41, where we told this. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. So while the people are celebrating, Jesus is weeping. This is a contrast that demands our attention because Jesus was not only weeping for first century Israel, but for every person today who makes the same mistake. Even today, far too many people demand a savior that will meet their earthly expectations rather than a savior who will fulfill God's plan. We will examine today's passage in three sections. First, the preparation. Then we will see the crowds and their celebration. And finally, as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the lamentation. So again, preparation, celebration, lamentation. Let's go please to verse 28 as I read the first section, the preparation. When he, Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. That is, he went to the area on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Verse 29, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes, meaning their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Jesus and his disciples, along with approximately one million others, have, are either arriving or have, have already arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate 
the Passover. Usually, when Jesus and the Twelve visited Jerusalem, they stayed overnight in the small village of Bethany, which is near the Mount of Olives. And you may know that Bethany is the location where the siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, owned a home. Jesus and his disciples often stayed with them. And if they did stay with them in Bethany on this journey, his final journey to Jerusalem, that would mean that Jesus sent his two disciples to nearby Bethpage to find this colt. Jesus is applying the practice called angaria, angaria. A government official or a person of high status could temporarily make use of someone else's property for personal business. Today, we've likely seen a movie where a police officer holds up their badge in order to commandeer a car because they're going to use that car for transportation. It's official business. In the ancient world, this rite of Angaria also extended to rabbis. Therefore, Jesus making use of another person's donkey was not unusual. But what is unusual is what the disciples are told to say when they are questioned by the owner of the colt. At verse 31, Jesus says, If anyone asks you, knowing, of course, they would be asked, why are you untying it? Thus you shall say to him, the Lord has need of it. Notice, they are not to say, our Lord has need of it. That would be another way of saying our rabbi has need of it. Rather, they are to say, the Lord has need of it. This suggests that the owners of the cult would understand who was meant by this explanation. Therefore, we will conclude that Jesus is so well known throughout Israel that even the residents of this small village of Bethpage are expecting his arrival into Jerusalem. The news, the excitement that Jesus is coming has preceded his arrival. And so when the, old cult, the cult's owners are told, the Lord has need of it, they know precisely who is meant. And so they quickly comply with the request. According to the parallel accounts provided by the other gospels, this colt is a young donkey. As Jesus tells his disciples, what they will find, and what will happen when they untie the colt, it gives us an important reminder. Jesus has the prophetic power to see into the future. And this is confirmed by verse 32. So those who were sent went their way and found it, notice, just as he had said to them. As the disciples find the colt, this not only tells us of Jesus' ability to see into the future, 
It also tells us that Jesus has yet again fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy. Listen, please, to the passage that was read earlier as the worship today was started. 500 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah wrote these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When the crowds saw Jesus riding on a donkey, they should have recognized the great significance of his arriving on this particular kind of animal. It was well known in the ancient world that when a king or a military general rode into a city on a donkey, that was an intentional symbol of peace. Conversely, if Jesus had ridden, ridden in on a horse, that would have signaled to expect war. But the people ignored this sign of peace, this donkey. They ignored the prophecy of Zechariah that said, Behold, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. And how would he come? Gentle and riding on a donkey. They ignored all the signs in order to see what they wanted to see. They ignored the part of the prophecy that said he would come gently, that he would come humbly, because they wanted to see a conquering king who would free them from the Romans. In the final act of preparation, we're told at verse 35 that the disciples took off their outer garments, their cloaks, and laid them on the young donkey in order to make a makeshift saddle for Jesus. The mention of the disciples laying their cloaks on the donkey also prepares us for the crowds who will also lay their cloaks down. But the crowds will lay their cloaks on the road. So let's go to verse 36 as we move to the second section, the celebration. We've seen the preparation, now the celebration. Verse 36. And as he went, many spread their clothes, meaning their cloaks, on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. As the crowds lay their cloaks before Jesus, let's remember the importance of this outer garment, the importance of the cloak. The cloak was the most important garment that a person owned. It was the garment that was it was this garment that was necessary for protecting its wearer from the cold. For those who were traveling, that cloak also served as a sleeping bag, 
Even in the spring, in the area around Jerusalem, it would be very cold at night. And so this, this garment, this cloak, was vitally important. It was not just a piece of clothing. It was necessary for people's survival. Therefore, to lay it on the ground in front of another person to walk on, that was a symbolic act of submission. It said, in effect, all that I have, all that's important to me, I surrender it to you. And why were they doing this? Well, I suggest it is because they were sure that the king that they wanted, the king that would provide for them, was going to bring them new economic prosperity. You see, they thought that when their king vanquished the Romans, they would no longer need to pay taxes to Caesar. And boy, it's, it was going to be good times for them. In addition to laying their cloaks before Jesus, John's gospel tells us that the people laid palms before him. They put palm leaves down. The palms are also symbolic. The palms are highly symbolic. In the ancient world, people would lay palm leaves before a king or a general who was returning from the battlefield. That's important. They lay palms before a king or general who was returning from the battlefield. And those palms meant victory, victory. And so what these people are doing, laying palms before him, they're giving him a hero's welcome. The closest modern parallel that we have is the ticker tape parade that takes place in New York City in the Canyon of Heroes. But there's a major disconnect among the people. You see, ordinarily, when someone was given a hero's welcome, it was for a victory that had already been achieved. But in this case, the people are not celebrating what Jesus has already done. They're celebrating a future military victory they are expecting him to win. They are celebrating the conquering king they expect him to be. And this, despite the fact that Jesus has given no indication of being that kind of leader. Not once has he called Israel to fight against the Romans. Instead, his constant appeal has been for the people to surrender to God, to repent and believe. But as a nation, the people were not interested in humbling themselves before God. They wanted a king who would lead them into battle to bring them financial prosperity. As we have these palms to mark this day, it's appropriate for us to celebrate Christ with palms because we know that Christ has won the victory. There's no more important victory than the victory that Christ has won. That is because he has won the victory over the most dreaded of enemies. And what are those enemies? They are the dual enemies of sin and death. Those are our greatest enemies. When Jesus gave his life on the cross, 
he won the victory of sin. He won the victory against sin for us. When Jesus rose from the grave, he defeated death for all who believe. And so for us, these palms are a reminder of his triumphal entry into our hearts. These palms are a reminder for the victory he has won for us. The victory over sin and the victory over death. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. I said a moment ago that the crowds were celebrating Jesus for what they expected him to do rather than what he had already done. But that's not entirely accurate. If we look again at verse 37, it says in the second part of the verse, second part of 37, the whole multitude, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. When the people saw the miraculous works that Jesus did, many mistakenly interpreted those signs as a confirmation, as a confirmation that he would be the kind of Messiah they wanted. For example, when the people saw Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread, or when they saw Jesus bring people back to life as he did for Lazarus, they thought to themselves, this is the kind of man that can lead us into battle against the Romans. What better king can we have than a man who can feed his armies, who can raise the fallen on the battlefield back to life to fight again? This is the kind of conquering king we need. All the while refusing his message, which is repent and believe. Let's turn our attention to their song. Verse 38. In the first line recorded by Luke, they sing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an excerpt from Psalm 118. And it's no surprise that the crowds would choose this psalm because in it the psalmist is praising God for giving him victory over his enemies. What is significant is that this line has been modified by the crowds. They sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalmist, however, originally wrote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And praise God, it's on the front of your bulletins today. That is the original verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what did the crowd sing? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, they substituted the word king to fit their own expectations. But as we know, Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings. But he did not come to meet our expectations. He didn't come to do our bidding. He came to fulfill God's perfect plan, his plan of salvation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not to give us a political triumph, but to give us victory over sin 
and death. In the second line of their song, the crowd sing, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What we're hearing here is an echo of the song that was delivered by the angels at Christ's birth. At Christ's birth, the angels sang, From heaven down to earth, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, meaning God's goodwill toward men. And how did God show his goodwill toward men? By sending us the Savior, his own Son. Here, on the road to Jerusalem, the communication is reversed. It is an upward communication. And the message that is sent is peace in heaven. And so what this song is doing is sending words of thanksgiving toward heaven. And why are they doing this? Because they expect that their Messiah is going to rid them of the Romans and is going to bring peace on heaven and in earth. And so this is a message of thanks. They're sending wishes of peace to heaven because they expect to be given peace on earth. They expect peace on earth that will be won by the sword. But as we well know, there is no lasting peace that is won by the sword. When it comes to the kind of peace that God wants for us, the kind of peace that only God can bring, that can only come from heaven, from Christ. And there is no more important peace than peace with God. More on that in a moment. As the crowds are engaged in this great celebration, we now discover that not everyone is singing. On the edge of the crowd are some of the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and they want Jesus to put an end to this celebration. Look, please, at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why did the Pharisees want Jesus to put an end to this celebration? Because while the crowds were hoping that this miracle worker is their Messiah, the Pharisees are sure he is not the Messiah. For three years, they have been confronting Jesus at every opportunity, challenging him with their trick questions, trying to poison the minds of the people by claiming his miraculous power is the result of his collusion with Satan. And so, while the Pharisees told lies about Jesus, Jesus revealed the truth about the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. Jesus exposed them as hypocrites. And we remember what that word hypocrites means, right? Hippocrates, it means stage actor. It literally means stage actor. He says they were merely playing a part. They wore masks, and they looked good on the outside, but inside, full of death. If we look to verse 40, Jesus now answers their call for silence. The call for silence demanded by the Pharisees. Verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Isn't that a great line? Jesus makes clear he won't silence the people. 
because they're right to welcome him as king. Even though they're doing so for the wrong reasons, they are right to welcome him as king. They are right to praise him because he is the king of kings. And it is appropriate for them to lay their cloaks and their palms before him in anticipation of victory because he will win the victory. Not the victory they want, but the victory that has been appointed to Christ according to the plan of God. The victory that Jesus will win and he has won for us, for all who believe, is his victory over sin and death. And so Jesus says, let the crowd celebrate because if they don't, the stones will cry out. Jesus was told by the Pharisees to rebuke the crowds. What does he do instead? He rebukes the Pharisees. The implication that he is making is that the rocks laying at the feet of the Pharisees are more aware of his messianic identity than they are. You see, it's one thing to be as dumb as a rock. It's quite another to be dumber than a rock. And that is what Jesus is saying the Pharisees are. If these people do not celebrate, the rocks will cry out. They recognize the truth about the Messiah. We've now seen the preparation. We've seen the celebration. Let's focus our attention now on the lamentation as Christ weeps for Jerusalem. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden, hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus has not yet entered the city. It says at the beginning of verse 41, he is drawing near. The crowds are singing. They're rejoicing over all their Messiah is going to do for them. But Jesus does not share in their celebration. There he sits, the creator of heaven and earth. Here is God come in the flesh. And he's sitting gently and humbly on a little donkey the symbol of peace. And as the procession moves slowly and loudly toward the gates of Jerusalem, there's Jesus weeping. And we may wonder, did anyone notice? Who noticed Jesus weeping? I imagine not many. Some of the 12 did, as evidenced by the fact that they shared this detail with Luke, the writer of this gospel. But beyond that, I would venture to say very few noticed Jesus weeping. Most were too busy with their celebration, imagining all their king was going to do for them, all the prosperity they would have. But here is their great warrior, their conquering king, 
and he's weeping. There are only two occasions recorded for us of Jesus weeping. I have to imagine there were other times, considering his great compassion, that he wept, but there are only two times that are recorded for us. The first was at the death of his friend Lazarus. At that point, Jesus wept. The other occasion is this one. As he weeps and speaks words of lamentation. Because as he looks into the distance at Jerusalem, he's also looking into the not-too-distant future. He's looking 40 years into the future from this moment. And what he sees in the future, 40 years in the future, causes him to weep. At verse 42, Jesus says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a prophecy, and it's a prophecy of doom. It speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 42, Jesus laments, if only you had known the things that make for your peace. There's a tragic irony here because the name of the city, Jerusalem, bears in it the word for peace. The name Jerusalem is a compound name. It's two words put together. The first part comes from the word Yerah, which means foundation. The second part of the word Salem is a form of the word Shalom, meaning peace. Therefore, Yerashalom, Yerashalom means foundation of peace. But peace in Israel would not and it will not be found in a place. Peace can only be found in a person. In all things, chief, Christ is the chief cornerstone. And it's only upon the foundation of Christ that we can have peace. Without Jesus, there can be no peace. We hear people calling, no justice, no peace. There's no peace without Christ. There can be no peace unless we first have peace with God. And it is only through Christ that we can be reconciled with the Father and have peace with God. It is through Christ. He is the door. The Bible says that our sin puts us at enmity with God. Meaning by our sin, we make God our enemy. Enmity. We make God our enemy. We push God away by our sin. Therefore, the only way we can be reconciled to God is if God forgives us of our sin. And the good news is that God has made a way for our sin to be forgiven. It is through faith in Christ and faith of Christ alone. But the people of Israel, they would not know peace. Why? Because they would not know Christ. Because the people of Israel 
wanted a savior on their own terms rather than according to God's plan. Jesus reveals now the result of their refusal of the Messiah and it is judgment. When the people of Israel looked at Jesus, they saw a conquering king. It's what they wanted to see, but they refused to see him for the kind of king that he is. And when they could not see what they wanted to see, when he would not meet their expectations, what did the people do? They shouted to Pilate, crucify him. This man will not do what we want him to do. Get rid of him. Crucify him. As a result of their rejection, God gave them over to their desires. Because they refused to see Jesus for who he is, the cost of their willful blindness is divine judgment. Jesus says, if you had known the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, because they would not see, because they would not see, now they will not be permitted to see. Now they are hidden from your eyes. Fortunately, this did not apply to every individual because we know that some, a small remnant within Israel, would believe and they would be saved to eternal life and praise God that they did because they carried the word to us. But as a nation, their refusal to accept Christ on his term would lead to judgment. Jesus now issues a prophecy, and it is a tragic and a horrible prophecy. In it, he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem, a destruction that would be brought by the Roman army. Starting at verse 43, Jesus gives five features of this coming judgment. Verse 43, for days will come upon you when your enemies will, one, build an embankment around you, two, surround you, three, close you in on every side, four, level you and your children to the ground, and five, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus foretells here is what historians refer to as the siege of Jerusalem. A crucial event occurred in 66 AD. That's approximately 36 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus. So in that year, 66 AD, increasing protests by the Jews reached a boiling point. The Jews conducted frequent protests over two primary issues. One, the unprovoked and brutal attacks by Roman soldiers against Jewish citizens. And two, increasingly confiscatory taxes, money that was used to support the presence of these brutal soldiers in their own land. And so in 66, one of these protests boiled over and the protests, protesters attacked a Roman garrison, a place where soldiers are, are kept. And they attacked the garrison, killed all its soldiers. 
well, news of this violent insurrection reached the Roman general Gallus, head of the Roman legion in Syria, which is north of Israel. He and his men marched south to crush this insurrection. But as he and his legion marched south, as many as 6,000 men were ambushed by a Jewish rebels battalion and they, the Romans, were soundly defeated. This sent shockwaves throughout the Roman Empire. You can, as you can well imagine, this was a public relations disaster. 6,000 men, 6,000 soldiers wiped out by Jewish rebels. Rome's policy was to kill and destroy at even the hint of trouble, but to have an entire legion of its soldiers wiped out by rebels, well, that could stir up rebellion in other parts of the empire. And so began a Roman campaign to teach not only the Jews in Israel, but the entire Roman Empire a lesson about the might of the Roman army. So in April of the year 67, the Emperor Nero appointed his general Vespasian, who was joined by the general's son Titus, an important name, to crush the revolt. Vespasian and Titus fielded a army of 60,000 men against Jerusalem. When their own Roman army reached Jerusalem, they couldn't march into the city because it was a walled city that was protected by fortifications on top of the wall. And so just as Jesus foretold, the Romans laid siege to the city. They surrounded it. Nothing could go in, nothing could go out. The Romans began a strategy of building siege ramps to breach the walls. They used an arsenal of sophisticated weaponry. They used catapults to endlessly bombard the walls. And there was an endless supply of projectiles all around Jerusalem, especially from the Mount of Olives. While the Romans battled against Jerusalem from outside the walls, there was also a battle going on inside the walls. Not between the Romans and the Jews, but the Jews against each other. There were two main rebel groups inside the Jerusalem walls, the Zealots and the Sicarii. They fought mostly over who was in charge, but also about what strategy they should use against the Romans. Thousands of Jews inside the walls of Jerusalem died because of the infighting within the walls. But perhaps the most tragic event of the siege occurred when an enormous stockpile of food inside the Jerusalem walls was burned on purpose. The Sakari burned the food because they wanted the people to fight rather than join this, calling, this growing call to surrender to the Romans. As a result, thousands more died of starvation by the summer of 70. The Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem. And they began the wholesale slaughter of its inhabitants. That was the penalty for not surrendering to the Roman army. The first century Jewish historian Josephus writes that over one million people died, either during the siege or at the hands of the Romans. A million people today, that's a lot of people. 
a million people in the first century. Josephus also records that 97,000 survived the slaughter only to be captured, sold into slavery. When the Romans entered the city, the inhabitants didn't surrender without a fight. Even in their weakened state, weakened from starvation and disease, the people inside Jerusalem tried to fight against the Romans as they entered the walls. The Jews employed what we would call urban warfare. They fought from house to house. But according to Josephus, the Roman soldiers grew so furious at the rebels' tactics that the soldiers began to burn house after house. Soon the entire city was in flames. And what did it do? It engulfed the temple. The heat caused the temple's marble construction to weaken and pulverize under its own weight. Later, the Roman soldiers removed these enormous stones one by one to gain the gold that had melted and dripped between the stones. They carted these stones, ton after ton after ton of stone, and brought it out to the valleys outside the city walls. So Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left upon another was filled, was fulfilled, just as he said. While Josephus blamed the destruction of Jerusalem on the militant Jewish nationalists, the zealots, in reality, Jesus gives us the true reason. At the end of 44, Jesus says, all this would happen because you did not know the time of your visitation. The long-awaited Messiah had come, the only one who could give them peace, lasting peace, but they would not have him. And there's only one result for refusing Christ, judgment. Judgment is not a pleasant subject. It's not one we like hearing about. And I suppose we don't like hearing about it on Palm Sunday. It would be especially true we don't want to hear about judgment. But we cannot ignore the facts of Scripture. And that this first Palm Sunday is a study in contrasts between the people's celebration, between the people's expectations, and Christ's lamentation. The people are celebrating, but they're doing so for the wrong reasons. They're celebrating their mistaken assumptions about who their Savior should be and what that Savior should do for them. It's no different today, is it? Even today, people are looking for a Savior who will live up to their expectations. A Savior of their own invention. And when people invent a Savior to their liking, what is that? That's an idol. While we don't like talking about judgment, we can be sure that Jesus didn't like talking about it either. Let's not miss the fact that as he speaks these words of judgment and prophecy, he's weeping. It breaks his heart. He's crying in pain because he, it does not need to be this way. The people wanted a savior to bring them peace. And there he was, right in front of them. And it's no different today. People are still looking for a savior, but they don't want Christ. And yet there he is, ever before us, ready to take us in 
If only we will have him on his terms. And yet, we human beings, we are so arrogant, so prideful, that we think we can dictate to God what kind of God he needs to be and what kind of Savior he needs to send us. It's as if we think that God has to fill out a job application and we're going to decide whether or not we're going to hire him. How many times have we heard somebody say, you know what, I can't believe a God like that. You know what, my God wouldn't do that kind of thing. That's a, that's a God of your own invention. The cost of this kind of pride, this kind of arrogance, is judgment. But again, even as Jesus speaks words of judgment, it brings him to tears. And why? Because he says, if only you had known the things that bring you peace. What are those things? What are those things that bring peace? Repent and believe. It's as simple and as difficult as that. Repent and believe. We need to repent of the false notion that we are good enough, that we can do enough to earn heaven. And we have to believe that there is only one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, please. If you have not yet believed, this is the time of your visitation. This is the time when Jesus, the living Lord, is calling to you, saying, believe and be saved. I implore you, let him into your heart, receive him as your king, open the gates of your heart, and let him come in in that triumphal entry. And you too can raise the palm. Not necessarily a palm leaf, but the palm of your heart. It says, I will give you, Lord, the victory over my life, and through faith in you, you will have for me the victory to give me forgiveness of sin and the feet of the grave and have everlasting life. That is the greatest of victories. Forgiveness of sin and the confidence of knowing that we too will rise from the grave, just as he said. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. There are none like you. On this, the day of your triumphal entry, we thank you for coming into this world and coming into the hearts of all who believe. Hallelujah.